Restaurants in 2020 have had to up their game uh, and all of the restaurants that remain open uh, post-COVID will be the ones that pivoted their business, that looked at their business models and streamlined them, uh, that uh, leaned down their menus to the higher margin, low cost items. Uh, and certainly we'll see that maintained into the future uh, to, the to ensure the profitability of restaurants, which they need to stay open and to reinvest in their businesses for the long haul. This week on Dirty Linen, I want to talk about representation. Who speaks for hospitality? Who's having those conversations? And is there indeed a, uh, an industry that is gathered that can be spoken for anyway? It's such a disparate industry. And it's been such a big year and there has been so much to talk about. One of the most prominent voices in the media and certainly behind the scenes has been Wes Lambert from the Restaurant and Catering Industry Association. And I'm really happy to welcome Wes to the program. Hey, Wes, thanks for joining me. Hey, Danny. Thank you. It's been a bit of a year, hasn't it? And certainly you've been in the thick of a lot of the conversations that have been going on, you know, public facing, but also behind the scenes. Uh, tell us, uh, how do you look back on 2020 from the middle of December where we find ourselves now? Oh, well, 2020 is probably the most devastating uh, year for hospitality, I would say, uh, ever. Um, but let's just say in a long time. Uh, you know, I don't know of any highs Certainly, there were some highs and some openings of some amazing venues uh, around the country uh, and in Melbourne specifically, where it was one of the hardest years. Um, but the lows are too numerous to count. We started with bushfires, which really opened the year in a negative way. And then we moved straight into uh, the pandemic, which, you know, it, it has been a series of, of uh, highs and lows with the lows being the peak of the pandemic. Uh, and the second wave in a couple of states, and the highs being all of the anticipation around reopening and restrictions easing uh, and getting to a COVID-safe summer or a COVID-normal where we are today. Yeah, I mean... It, it, I'm in Melbourne and Melbourne at the moment, you know, I've been in the city every day for the past few days and it's just, it's buzzing. Like there is a lot of optimism around uh, and it feels great. You know, we're so excited to be open again. We've certainly had the toughest ride of anywhere in Australia, uh, but we know that a lot of businesses are still, you know, tracking way below where they want to be. We also know that they're propped up by JobKeeper. How do you see things playing out, um, you know, with there's people can't get enough staff, um, we know that JobKeeper's going to finish, you know, what do you think are the challenges for 2021 and how are things going to shake down? Well, as you said, uh, in, in Melbourne specifically, which has uh, been open less than any other state, uh, with uh, outdoor parklets and uh, now the indoor dining uh, one per two, uh, it is certainly starting uh, to get uh, a bit busier and the demand is definitely there to get out and eat. Uh, and it will be a great summer for uh, Melbourne and for Victoria. Uh, but we're cautious on uh, 2021. Um, the demand we think is going to wane a little bit. Uh, there are no international visitors here. There are no international students. There's no working holiday makers. We really don't expect them to begin to come back until uh, at least um, the end of 2021. Uh, so it will be very important around the country that consumers continue to visit their favorite cafes, their favorite restaurants, continue to have the events, uh, the weddings and the private events and really the corporate functions because uh, in just a few days, the insolvency protections expire on 31 December. Uh, and then JobKeeper 2.0 uh, goes down, JobSeeker goes down, 
Uh, and yes, JobMaker uh, does uh, come into play, but uh, then we get to 30 March, uh, and JobKeeper and JobSeeker are set to expire, uh, and the landlord cut of practice. So certainly uh, into the deep autumn and winter months, it will be vital that Australians continue to patronize businesses. Um, ultimately, prices have gone up, uh, and we do expect that prices will stay up. Uh, prices in hospitality needed a reset. Uh, the average price of a cup of coffee has been you know, between $3.60 and $4 for a decade. Uh, a steak has been around $25 to $28 for a decade. Um, certainly needs to be something that uh, is, is continued in the future uh, to be aligned with the increased costs of wages, the increased cost of rents, the increased cost of uh, uh, inputs of food and beverage, uh, and then just the operating cost of businesses every day that have gone up over the decade. Do you reckon that uh, JobKeeper is going to end at the end of March or do you think that, you know, the government will look at it and think uh, we must might need to run this a little bit longer? Look, as of now, it's set to end at the end of March and unemployment is certainly going down and the economy is certainly getting stronger. Uh, I think that it will be uh, difficult to see any downward trend uh from a Treasury's point of view, uh, as early as March, I think that there'll be lagging numbers. Uh, there will be demand uh, till into February and then Valentine's Day in the hospitality sector. And uh, we might not see that demand drop in uh, terms that the that Treasury can notice. Uh, it may be a situation where um, bespoke stimulus is needed, similar to the out and about uh, dining scheme in New South Wales, which is going to drive demand from uh, mid-January until 30 June, uh, bringing a billion to a billion and a half dollars into the arts and uh, uh, entertainment and the accommodation food service industry. Mm, so it's more from that spending consumer side rather than from the, you know, propping up the industry side. Ultimately, every business will tell you that what they would prefer is to have their business back. Uh, they certainly enjoyed the uh, JobKeeper if they were eligible, but but uh, as they got uh, uh, less than 30% down from year over year, uh, then they are not eligible and then they move on to the job maker for the people that they hire back into those positions. And do you think that uh, if, you know, a lot of people are saying that they think that when JobKeeper finishes, there will be a lot of businesses that, you know, the writing that's been on the wall, you know, is finally, you finally have to read it and close the business. Do you think that the staff that are sort of shaken out into the market through those inevitable closures will balance things out and businesses will be able to staff up to a level that means that they can, yeah, open as much as they want to and get as much business as they want to? Well, that's a, that is the $64 million question is will there be enough staff in Australia given that there's very few working holiday makers here and that there's uh, uh, no international students and that many of the um, skilled migrants that were here went back to their home countries. Uh, there certainly will be a shortage uh, for some time and, you know, it it is important to understand that when some of the zombie businesses, businesses that are either trading well below previous year's revenue uh, and are only propped up by stimulus, when they fall over in uh, early 2021, um, you know, that will uh, provide some uh, staff for uh, other restaurants. But I think staffing issues are going to be with us for all of 2021, and it will be the year of training and apprenticeships and the year of micro-credentials and short courses. 
Okay. I mean, it's interesting from a consumer point of view. I, I got an email from someone who reads my restaurant reviews today and she, she spoke about, you know, five different experiences that she'd had in her local neighbourhood and, you know, there was this one Paragon restaurant that was doing everything right. But then the other four that she was talking about, they seemed really beset by issues which, you know, when I was sort of reading into it, it's like it's all about staffing and it's all about inexperience and it's... Uh, you know, as much as we want people to support restaurants and to go to them, it's like there is obviously a, 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 an impact of people employing less experienced people or perhaps less qualified people in certain roles, especially, well, it's, yeah, customer facing for sure, but of course in kitchens as well. I mean, do you think that that's, you know, something that puts the industry in greater peril? Well, globally, hospitality uh, runs usually in the top five industries. Uh, and in the U.S., it's a $900 billion industry uh, just behind the government. And uh, in many other countries, uh, hospitality is seen not as just a job, but as a profession. Uh, and that's usually rewarded with reasonable wages and then uh, tips that are commensurate with the service level that you get. Uh, and here in Australia, hospitality is not necessarily uh, seen as a profession, which is something that restaurant and catering is definitely going to change uh, in the future. But um, it's, it is also that service level of tips uh, that you know, typically run between 5 and 8% in Australia that um, can affect that service level comparison between uh, other countries and Australia. But um, the professionals that are, are still in the industry, uh, they certainly uh, want to get better. Uh, and any new entrance to the industry uh, will learn and uh, will become better skilled. Uh, but certainly consumers uh, may have to understand in the short term, in the interim, uh, in 2021, until those uh, professionals do get uh, skilled up and do uh, get used to being in a new profession or in a profession where um, where the expectation of higher service levels uh, are there, uh, it will take a little bit of time. And we do ask consumers to uh, be patient. Uh, it uh, As Australians uh, take roles that uh, had been filled uh, previously by working holiday makers and uh, visa holders. Mm. Um, Wes, we've seen you so much in the media this year. It's you know there've been so many stories about about restaurants and the hospitality industry, and you you're always in them. But I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and you know what made you want to step into such a role. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh well, I don't know if we have long enough on the podcast. However, I um I've always been in, in, in and around hospitality. My, uh, I faked an idea at 14 to uh, work flipping hamburgers and, and waited tables through high school uh, and uh, did a little time in the military, which where I learned a bit of discipline and organization and triage. Uh, and then back and uh, I studied business and focused uh, on um, the, the back end of hospitality, more the financial side. Uh, and then got into um, venues and nightclubs and then pubs and then uh, moved to Australia and became a restaurateur of, uh, of a decent-sized group that uh, I grew uh, into a public company and sold on uh, and have done some retail. And, and uh, in all of that, I got my CPA and chartered secretary. And so um, when I came back to Australia in, in uh, 2019, April, uh, I don't know how I, f I fell right in line with uh, the uh, search for a CEO for restaurant and catering, but uh, I think all the stars aligned because literally within months of, of me taking the position, uh, the country was in peril uh, in terms of hospitality, and it has remained so. And I think the mix of my 
hospitality, financial, hospitality, operations, military, and work ethic uh, have certainly uh, played their part in being able to help the industry. Um, you know, and I'm not camera shy. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm never afraid to uh, be the voice of the industry. And I think that's helped the industry uh, by having someone who's willing to stand up and fight for the industry and what they believe in. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say you represent the industry because the industry is so disparate and so diverse. And most restaurants, of course, are not Restaurant and Catering Industry Association members. How do you sort of, who do you see your, yourself as representing? Is it just those people that have um, paid up their dues or is it the industry more broadly? I mean, do you have a vision of where you'd like the hospitality industry to be and you're fighting for that? Like there must be so many challenges in, in representing an uh, an arena that is so disparate, so diverse. Uh, Well said. It certainly uh, is a a challenge, uh, one that that restaurant and catering myself are up for. Uh, Pre-COVID, there were about 47,000 restaurants, cafes, caterers, event caterers, and small bars uh, in Australia as a segment of the wider accommodation food service industry, which pre-COVID was about 95,000 businesses. Um, The way that the system is set up in Australia is the government uh, typically only wants to speak to the peak bodies, to the industry association. And so member or not a member, um, we do speak on behalf of the restaurant industry. And each uh, sub-segment of the sector is different. Uh, What uh, big independent restaurants need is different than what restaurant chains need. Uh, What uh, cafes and coffee shops need is different than what event caterers need. And we've had to get up to speed on all of those diverse uh, and disparate uh, voices uh, and you know I'm, I'm on my phone at least three or four hours a day to restaurant tours to find out exactly what they need so that I can shape that into an ask from local state and federal government that is average across the whole industry and gets the best outcome for the entire segment rather than just uh, any individual operator. Yeah, well, that must have been incredibly challenging over the past uh, six or eight months because, of course, you know, some people have your ear and they don't mind bending it and others perhaps, you know, are just really in the thick of their own business and perhaps, you know, don't feel that your industry association does represent them or really, you know, they might not even know about you and I'm thinking about you know people the the vast um, number of people who's you know English isn't their first language they're in a a, perhaps in the suburbs you know they're not really connected with you know quote-unquote the industry whereas those there are those you know bigger players people that um, don't mind putting their views forward very strongly I mean it must be it must be very challenging at any time to balance that out and to think about, you know, the, the good of the industry, but it must have been particularly challenging through the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. You're right. There is There are uh, many different uh, backgrounds and uh, diversity in the hospitality industry. Uh, and certainly um, as a base business, uh, all restaurants have... Uh, you know, uh, a premise, uh, which means they needed a liquor license or a DA, uh, which things that we help with uh, from the beginning, leases and, and that type of starting your business, uh, as well as checklists to get your business started. What do I need to do? What are the hundred things that I need to do to open a restaurant? What certifications do I have to have? Food handler, food safety, um, all of that. We, we offer that type of training as an RTO. Uh, and then as they move into hiring staff, you know, we 
restaurant and catering argues the restaurant award. So almost every change to the restaurant award, uh, restaurant and catering has a hand in that. And we argue for the industry, which is probably the single most important thing that we do for the industry is uh, acting as the Mm -hmm. registered organization. So all 47,000 of those businesses, whether they're members or not, uh, have a voice through restaurant and catering about their award, which is what, why we encourage uh, as many restaurants as possible to join so that they can have a united voice in terms of uh, speaking about the award uh, and certainly can't complain later if they didn't feel like they had a part because we are the industry association that argues the award. Uh, and then you move on things like um, like uh, supplier discounts and negotiating with entire industries on terms and conditions uh, and you know, the, the gambit of things that a restaurateur is going to face from the cost of their electricity to you know, any other supply chain. Uh, we're right there for them in the thick of it, uh, either arguing for the cost or we're arguing for the conditions that uh, that business faces. Uh, And then we have our awards each year. Uh, We held all of our awards this year, except for in Victoria, which was under lockdown, uh, which uh, recognizes uh, the uh, preeminent uh, uh, businesses and chefs and apprentice chefs uh, and lifetime achievers. And uh, and also um, this year we introduced some wards around uh, some of the things that uh, restaurateurs and chefs had done to give back to the industry. So, you know, we're quite a wide, uh, wide amount of, of uh, services that we offer to the industry. Uh, but certainly from the government's point of view, uh, if they want to find something out or if they want to, uh, or if any change is made from, from the government's point of view at, from industry, it comes from the industry associations. So can you give us an example, like take us behind the scenes a little bit? You know, what are those, what are, what actually happens? You know, we hear about roundtables. I'm sure you're on the phone a lot. Like what what's an example even of, you know, one, uh, something that the um, you've lobbied for, you know, who was in the room? You know, what, how did those conversations go? What actually happens? So uh, nationally, it's more about things like uh, industrial relations. Uh, that, that's a bigger thing. Uh, more locally, it's uh, things like liquor license. Uh, in Victoria, it's the temporary outdoor liquor licenses. We're right there fighting for uh, the process of making that happen, uh, as well as things like um, you know the one per two and the timing of how that rolls out and the specifics of what you can and can't do, um, you know, which is us uh, having uh, multiple meetings, uh, typically multiple meetings a week, with the departments that are responsible for executing the laws that are made. So if if the government makes a rule or a law, it's up to departments within the government to execute that and to come up with the FAQs. And so even when Treasury came up with uh, JobKeeper, we were there in the room uh, working on all of the terms and conditions and how that rolled out, uh, and certainly uh, speaking along with other associations on making changes, uh, especially to JobKeeper 2.0, which was originally supposed to start which was originally supposed to take into account your 30 June and 30 September uh, uh, revenue, and we had it changed to just uh, 30 September because so many businesses had begun to recover to 30 June, only to plummet again when the second lockdowns came in. And so behind the scenes, behind the scenes, uh, the government and the departments and the um, Lord mayors of the uh, the CB of the bigger cities in Australia will bring us into the room to be a part of the discussion. And because we represent such a big industry, uh, we certainly uh, carry some weight in terms of the final outcome. 
And have you noticed much difference between, let's say, the different states in Australia and how they brought you in, you know, whether, which rooms you were in and which rooms you perhaps weren't invited to be in? Uh, we were primarily on the East Coast. Uh, we were very, very active in New South Wales, in Queensland, in Victoria and South Australia uh, and ACT and a bit less so in uh, Western Australia, Northern Territory uh, and Tasmania. Uh, those uh, states went very quickly uh, on their path and also were some of the first to open, so didn't necessarily have to deal with um, with the unique restrictions uh, and lockdowns and uh, pushes to ease as the East Coast states did. Okay, but, I mean, I saw you quoted, I think it was an article in today's age, that it, there was less consultation in Victoria. Uh, certainly in the beginning there was less consultation on the original roadmap. Uh, the original roadmap was um, was done uh, very hastily, and most of the industry associations didn't necessarily feel that we had been consulted on the content. We were more consulted on getting it out to our respective industries rather than the content. And then over time, and up until the most recent announcements, we certainly were fighting for the industry and working closely with the departments on the FAQs. Uh, but you know, certainly in Victoria, it, it has come about that, um, that many, many days without uh, uh, community transmission. But other states did open their economies uh, with tracking and tracing and QR codes uh, and continued to move forward, even though they had some clusters of community transmission. So you know, de definitely um, Victoria was on a different path. Uh, and now the entire country is, ha has gone you know, a, a significant amount of time with, without any major community transmission, uh, which uh, is a great outcome for everyone. <laughs> okay, so obviously, you know, you've got to be a bit of a diplomat in your role. Um, so is it mostly now you're, are you, are you basically always looking forward? It's like, okay, what next? What next? It's not like you're looking back and going, oh, those, you know, why didn't we open? Look, it's, you, you know, it's always uh, 2020 looking back. You can always see what, what worked and what didn't work. But there are many challenges ahead. You know, we're just in COVID safe summer. We're just in COVID normal. Uh, it is quite important that uh, we all remain vigilant and keep those lines of communication open uh, and that understanding open that, um, that industry and government and departments all need to work together uh, to get to that, uh, th those outcomes. And hopefully moving forward, uh, we will stay that way and we will continue along the lines of that close association that uh, we came to in the end with uh, with most of the stakeholders. One of the things, well, it, you know, it's not, it's not my brain flash, but like we have to have um, con really good contact collection, don't we? I feel like that's almost the most important thing that restaurants can do now. And yet so many are taking their um, eye off the ball with that. And there's not, there's not great contact collection in restaurants. Are you um, advising your members? Like, is that something that you're stressing to people that it's, it's such an important uh, way that we can stay safe and stay open? A part of our weekly EDMs and certainly on our uh, coronavirus hub on our website, uh, it is our number one message is track and trace. That is the fastest and best way to deal with clusters. As long as international flights continue to land in Australia, there will be people who have coronavirus in hotel quarantine and there will always be a risk, look at South Australia, that someone in hotel quarantine mm. will pass that on to someone else. It's a virus. It's a squiggle. It It's sole purpose 
in the world is to get transmitted. And so it is very important for us all to be super vigilant. No one wants to get caught out and be the hospitality venue that was not checking the tick of all of the patrons as they come in. Uh, you know, now that we're at one per two and now we have more, um, more patrons inside, it is even more important that, uh, that um, as you come into a restaurant that a server or a manager or a team leader or, or anyone whose responsibility it is to check that you've checked that tick and you have signed in, this will be the way that we stay on top of coronavirus and we don't end up with, uh, with a third wave in Victoria or a second or third wave uh, in the other states around the country. Mm, absolutely agree. I find it really scary and upsetting if, if no one, like, I'm, I'm, I'll look for the QR code. I'll find it if it's there. But if someone's not, like, making me, like, really making it happen, I think it just makes me feel unsafe. So, yeah, I hope um, I hope that message really gets through. Um, Wes, we've seen a lot over the last little while about proposed industrial relations changes with some legislation put, put to Parliament in the last week of sitting. Um, I'd love to know your take on it. So one of the – there's a couple of things perhaps we could talk about. One is that part-time workers uh, can be uh, asked to work more hours without penalty rates. And the other one is that the better off overall test when um, employers and employers are making agreements doesn't need to be applied. And I, get, and I think that one is related to, a, a, there's an expiry date on that one. But I mean, what do you think about this? I guess there's this balance between flexibility for businesses, but um, you know, good pay and conditions for workers. Where, where do you land on it? Well, luckily, the uh, better off test doesn't apply so much to the hospitality industry. Uh, 93% of the industry uh, is con considered to be small, uh, doing less than $38,500 a week in revenue. Uh, so certainly those single unit businesses don't necessarily have enterprise agreements. Uh, so, however, the flexibility that you talked about with the part-timers uh, previous to uh, this announcement in the omnibus bill uh, was that if someone was rostered part-time, let's say for 22 hours or 23 hours, and if you had them work by agreement for any extra hours, uh, they would have to be paid at overtime. So it uh, didn't pass the pub test that an employee would be making overtime for less than 38 hours uh, per week because of a, um, a line in the restaurant award that called for uh, any hours over your part-time roster would be paid with that overtime. And so uh, businesses were hesitant to give hours to part-time employees. Well, with these flexibilities, it then allows those part-time employees to get extra time and extra work uh, while the business is then able to be a bit more flexible around demand, which again, cautiously, we're not sure where that demand's gonna fall uh, in many states uh, once the holidays are over. Uh, in addition, uh, in the bill allowing the JobKeeper flexibilities for the 12 most uh, hit industries during the pandemic for the next two years uh, will certainly allow those businesses to flex up and down uh, in terms of labor uh, during a time where we're still quite unsure how, the, how Australia is going to fare. Uh, most countries, most jurisdictions, they're at the peak, peak, peak of coronavirus. They're reaching, you know, days that were unheard of even in April and May. I think in the United States uh, yesterday, there were nearly 3,000 mm. deaths and there were you know, over 280,000 infections. If you look at the graph of Europe, if you look at the graph of, of uh, many countries in Asia, it's as bad as it's ever been. 
So we're very lucky here in uh, in Australia. We're very lucky to have taken a um, a strategy that got us uh, nearly COVID-free as a country. And so it, it's quite important that that all of the the functioning processes within the, within the government and processes within uh, industrial relations are allowed to have that flexibility to flex uh, as we go through 2021 uh, and you know, with the hopes of a viable vaccine that can be uh, easily and quickly administered to the entire population, uh, there certainly is still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and so we support uh, any flexibility in the, in the omnibus bill. What about the idea that uh, casuals that have been employed in that role for six months have got the right to go to to a full time to a permanent role? What do you think about that for hospitality? Is that workable? Uh, look, the the, the uh, transition from casual to part or, or uh, casual to full time is certainly something that. Uh, that we're supportive of in terms of the, the communication between the employer and the employee uh, and getting to stable employment. Uh, ultimately, we're going to have quite a skill shortage for the next, uh, according to the Treasury, you know, potentially one to two years, even out to 2024, uh, with net negative migration of 600,000 people. So, you know, it, it is quite important that uh, that businesses are are certainly getting people into those part and full time jobs where they can. Uh, and that they have the flexibility to do so. And so, you know, it's the trade-off between between the casualization of the workforce and hospitality, uh, which is traditionally where it's been, and then moving to something where there's enough flexibility in part-time that uh, both the employer and the employee uh, can live with that flexibility, and uh, it uh, stabilizes the industry. I mean, it feels like now it's really, it's an employee's market. You know, I've heard of people getting, you know, sign-on bonuses. People are able to ask for better wages and conditions. It's like nobody should be working in hospitality um, in a situation where they're being exploited or asked to uh, asked to work for less than the award at the moment. It's It feels like there's, everybody is hiring. Nobody should stand for anything um, that's, you know, uh, less than less than acceptable. Absolutely. Restaurant and catering and me personally, uh, we stand for 100% compliance to the Fair Work Act and to the Restaurant Award or the Hospitality Award. Uh, and certainly uh, through the pandemic, a lot of black uh, economy, uh, uh, shadow economy businesses that were dealing with just cash uh, are certainly uh, got no stimulus, got no um, government help. Uh, those businesses will probably not be the ones that come back uh in the uh, COVID-19 recovery, uh, and certainly there will be less instances of exploitation. Uh, but just like you, uh, we want to stamp out that um, exploitation. It is very important that uh, uh, hospitality's good name is uh, lifted up and that uh, Australians, uh, again, believe that it is a viable and vibrant industry, and it can be so fulfilling to employees. And it is a career around the world. Uh, hospitality is such a career. In fact, in the U.S., there's an Ivy League uh, college of uh, hospitality management, uh, and you know many, many uh, chefs and front of house managers and back of house managers will tell you that it is their lifetime career and they love it. Uh, it it's very important that we move into a uh, into an environment where that love is retained and grows uh, within the Australian population that is here filling those roles. I mean. It 
speaking of the US where you're from and I'm sure you've got many um, you know friends that you're talking to in the industry over there I mean it is so dire it's so tragic there's so little support for for hospitality businesses um, and just with the state of the state of the virus over there it's it's really devastating I mean um, there's there's no job keeper there's there's and it's it's very fragmented it's very politicized there's a lot of um, you know court action and people fighting city hall it just seems like a complete mess and yeah really really sad it is a complete mess uh, and um, you know comparing that the flip side to Australia Australia's done an amazing job. Uh, we are COVID-free, basically. Uh, there, still, there still are some cases every day, typically in hotel quarantine. Uh, there's very little, if any, community transmission. And so, you know, overall, net-net, uh, the governments all did what they thought best. And on the other side, here we are with a basically COVID-free Christmas and a COVID-free New Year's, hopefully, knock on wood. But I think that many other jurisdictions... Um, they didn't have a collective voice. They did not have a, a leadership that, was, that came together so quickly. Uh, you know, look at National Cabinet came together very, very quickly uh, early on in the COVID uh, pandemic. And they came up with some ground rules. And for the most part, most of the premiers and um, the National Cabinet has, uh, has stuck to those. There have been a few outliers, certainly, uh, as you said, possibly for political reasons. But ultimately, uh, the entire country was in lockstep. And ultimately, uh, the, the citizens and the residents that are here uh, followed the rules uh, for the most part. And that really has led us to be the envy of the rest of the world um, because we did the right thing. We put health first and business a very, very close second. And that seems to be the way to stamp out coronavirus, to get business back to business more quickly. Mm. Yeah, I saw some uh, some images the other day of um, all these plates that were, that were put onto the lawn at, um, at, at in Washington at Congress, um, and each one had the name of a failed restaurant um, written on it, and it was a really devastating image. We just got these scattered plates, um, you know, representing broken dreams and people out of work. And I, I guess, um, you know, that's that's a that's a strong image, but it's not necessarily effective lobbying. So I guess. Um, I mean, the U.S. is so much bigger, of course. It's such a if, if the Australian indi- industry is disparate, the U.S. even more so. But it just feels like, yeah, there's there wasn't a collective voice, there wasn't um, concerted and, and collective action that helped. Well, it's so far has helped restaurants get through an extremely challenging year. Uh, I think it's because it, the country is so big and the population is so big, and there are so many different types of hospitality businesses. Uh, I know that. Um, uh, up popped the Independent Restaurant Association uh, to lobby for uh, the restaurant bill, uh, which um, did get through Senate, but did not get through the House of Representatives. And so, uh, you know, that that probably won't make it any further. Uh, however, you know, there was a lot of lobbying. It was more that the, the health response was not the number one response. Uh, and so, you know, tracking and tracing went out the window. Um, you know, each you could go from one town to the next, and some towns were masks and some were not. Uh, I come from the state of Georgia, and uh, the the Metro Atlanta was masks, 
and the state was not. And so you had, you had so many competing voices and so many um, you know, different opinions. Uh, and certainly that has been one of the contributing factors to the, to the uh, rampant outbreaks of, of COVID-19. Uh, and while the, you know, the um, mortality is not high as a percentage, when the infection rate is so high and so many people get sick, the sheer numbers of people that uh, pass away from COVID is increasing so so dramatically. Uh, I think uh, it's nearly 300,000 in the US. That's just under half of the cancer death number in the United States. That's a, that is a major, major number of people. Now it is a low percentage of the infections, that is true, but it is a huge number because so many people were infected. You know, over a million people a week are, are catching COVID-19 in the US. And so, you know, this is, in Australia, overall, the government has done an excellent job uh, in working with both health and with industry. Um, not always in the speed that we wanted. Uh, certainly we lobbied, uh, you know, quite loudly uh, for changes to happen uh, more rapidly based upon comparative changes in other states. Uh, and, you know, certainly sometimes that worked and sometimes that it didn't. Uh, but overall, as we march into a COVID, uh, low COVID or COVID-free Christmas and hopefully a COVID-free New Year's, uh, one can look back at the total response you know, from March until today. And ultimately, things uh, have gone in the direction of, of eliminating or, or certainly suppressing COVID uh, in Australia. Mm, we're so lucky. So, Wes, have you been just like so tired out by this year that you're going to just uh, go off and uh, tend the roses or are you going to stick around in the role of um, restaurant and catering CEO for a bit longer? Oh, I'm absolutely going to stay in the role of restaurant and catering. I love it. <laughs> uh, there are lots and lots of challenges left uh, uh, in the future. Uh, certainly, as you said before, bringing the industry together, being the voice of the industry, moving into 2021, which will certainly be a, uh, a fight in the IR arena. And then just the recovery of the industry and you know the, the prices, uh, as you said, which you know, will need to, uh, to be maintained, uh, as well as the pivot that the industry has taken to so many other different revenue channels and different ways of doing business. Uh, we're the ones that are going to be there for the industry to help them with the IR, to help them with the training and education, to help them with their, their leases and their forms uh, and uh, with their business models and to help them to, uh, you know, deal with suppliers and help them to deal with their local, state, and federal governments uh, going forward, and uh, hopefully in 2021, uh, helping them with their recruiting also, and and certainly uh, being seen as the single source of truth for the hospitality industry, uh, and to be member focused, uh, and to be that voice that they they so desperately uh, have needed for a long time, and that we have risen to the challenge to become. Um, so let's just finish off with a couple of you know pointers for restaurants in Australia, you know, what do you think that people are generally doing really well? And what do you think that restaurants could generally improve on? Oh, well, you know, restaurants in 2020 have had to up their game. Uh, and all of the restaurants that remain open uh, post COVID will be the ones that pivoted their business that looked at their business models and streamlined them, uh, that uh, leaned down their menus, 
We recently released our uh, 2020 benchmarking report this week, uh, and it showed that um, food cost as a percentage of revenue had gone down significantly, and that's due to menus leaning out to the higher margin, low cost items. Uh, and certainly we'll see that maintained into the future uh, to, the in to ensure the profitability of restaurants, which they need to stay open and to reinvest in their businesses for the long haul. Uh, certainly businesses that have helped their employees, uh, both visa and non-visa employees, by uh, the non-visa employees signing up for JobKeeper and you know, borrowing money if they needed to to pay it and keeping their businesses running and stable even if they were closed and only doing takeaway and delivery. And then most especially those businesses that went that extra mile and helped their visa workers and their student, uh, international students who had no stimulus. Uh, they certainly have a special place in my heart uh, and restaurant and catering's heart because they went above and beyond. And, and if, you know, if they could, uh, and certainly you know, not dinging anyone that couldn't do it for financial reasons, but all of the restaurants that could do it and chose to do it, they definitely will come out the other end uh, with that staff and a bit uh, better placed for 2021. Uh, businesses that pivoted uh, and added different revenue streams, even things that they may have hated before uh, or thought wouldn't work for their particular food type, uh, look at uh, Provador and the fine dining delivery or look at... Um, at uh, some of the self-delivery apps that have popped up, like Bopple, uh, they certainly, uh, you know, have changed the game, uh, as well as uh, you know some bespoke experiences where you know fine dining and premium casual chefs uh, ha had their food take away and then made videos uh, on YouTube and uh, Face and Facebook to show their diners how to unpack it and to present it as if it was the fine dining or premium casual. Uh, we're certainly seeing that uh, businesses that have diversified their dining spaces, um, you know, especially the ones that have, uh, you know, have changed a bit of their front of house um, and, you know, maybe made their back of house a bit bigger so that they could do more uh, production of takeaway and delivery, production of of um, the bespoke experiences like the hampers uh, and even the packaged food. Uh, that has become a revenue stream for many uh, businesses in the hospitality industry where they're actually now selling to uh, grocery stores and selling uh, directly to consumers uh, prepackaged meals um, for them to consume at home. Uh, and finally, you know, businesses that stuck to it, businesses that put their, their shoulders to the grindstone and pushed through COVID-19, you know, those are the businesses that are set for 2021 and have the most firm footing. Mm. Well, we'll be there eating out and uh, seeing, yeah, I guess, enjoying the fruits of that creativity and that yeah, dogged persistence. Uh, thank you so much, Wes. It's really great to have you on the show. And um, yeah, I know it's been a massive year for you. I hope that you get to have a, a little break, perhaps eat in some restaurants around the country. But <laughs> I wish, wish you all the best for 2021. Thank you, Danny. I'm certainly going to take a break. I just bought a ukulele today that I'm going to learn how to play over the break. And as of now, I'm going to Byron Bay to just relax. Awesome. Well, next time when we have you back on the show, I expect a tune. So get practicing. <laughs> okay, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. 
Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. Oh, <laughs>